You're listening to TIP. Nonsense. Nonsense. Just friggin' nonsense. I mean, I've now lived through two of these episodes. So the first one being that building. And then the second one being in 2020 during COVID with a much larger portfolio. I mean, you know, just to give your listeners some context, we own $200 million worth of buildings now, 50 something apartment buildings in Los Angeles. In this week's episode, I interviewed Moses Kagan about his thoughts on higher education, how he's implemented some of his learnings from Warren Buffett into his company, and why everyone should read his shareholder letters, some of the mishaps in his first real estate deal, his experience in the 2008 downturn, and he explains where we are in the real estate cycle. Moses is the co-founder and partner at Adaptive Realty and has been involved with the acquisition and renovation of more than 100 buildings in Los Angeles. He earned his bachelor's from Princeton and a master's from the London School of Economics. Moses is married, has three sons, and lives in a beautifully restored 100-year home in LA. Moses is also the co-founder of Reconvene, one of the highest value private equity real estate conventions to have emerged in the last few years. I've wanted to speak with Moses for quite some time now. I've been a fan of his Twitter account for a while. I've been following him on Retweet, and I'm very excited to have him here on today's show. So without further delay, let's dive into this week's episode with Moses Kagan. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, we have a very special guest, someone I've actually wanted here on the show for a while. So we're finally making it happen. Moses Kagan. Moses, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you getting the chance. You may not realize this, but I feel like I've been getting the equivalent of an MBA in real estate by reading your blog and your tweets. So first off, I want to thank you for sharing your real estate knowledge and your experience. I think the information is kind of like having a mentor in a box. Now, my first question, I want to talk to you a bit about higher education. I just mentioned an MBA. So let's talk about higher education. You went to undergrad at Princeton. You received a master's at the London School of Economics. I can't remember who said it, but someone successful said, there are more wealthy, dumb people in real estate than in any other profession. What do you think of this point of view regarding real estate? And how do you view higher education for someone who's interested in getting started in real estate investing? Let me first just thank you for that amazing compliment that you gave me before asking the question. I didn't have a mentor really. And so it's important to me to kind of try to be that for other people. And writing on the internet allows me to do it at scale. It's having the desired effect. And I appreciate you saying that. In terms of education, it's a complicated question. I think that there is enormous value to higher education separate from its impact on your career. Like, I just, so I want to start out by saying that, like, it's good for the world to have educated people. It's good for our country to have educated people. It gives you context and history and humanity has made a lot of mistakes over the last, whatever it is, 5,000 years of civilization and good to have some background so that we don't keep repeating the same ones over and over and over again. It's important for its own sake. Professionally, though, Real estate's got to be the field that, or at least one of the fields that has the highest upside without being particularly dependent on having credentials. The thing about real estate is like, where else can you walk into a bank 
and be like, hey, can I have $20 million? And they just give it to you. That's like insane. Like if you try to do that to buy a company or a piece of art or I don't know what else, like zero chance. But I personally have signed on loans for like, I don't know, maybe like $100 million of loans right now. And like, that's insane. Like I'm just a guy. And I didn't get there on day one, but that's where we've gotten to after, you know, whatever it is, 14 or so years in the business. And so my point is like, there's just no other field that's like that. Maybe investors care a little bit about, you know, where you went to school or something very, like really early on. But the truth is that it's not really a gating item. Like people can do really well without having gone to college or having gone to some no name school. Like it's really about hustle and being honest and taking care of your partners and your customers. For those who are listening, a lot of people are kind of at this important juncture in their life where they're about to start formal, traditional secondary education, or maybe they're at a point where they're considering going back. Maybe they already have a bachelor's. They might go get a master's. Would you have done things a little differently than you did if you knew what you know now? No. I mean, let's see. I have derived an enormous amount of benefit from... I went to Andover and then I went to Princeton. And I have like really good networks, I would say, or decent networks from those places. And those have been valuable to me in terms of, well, just in my life, I mean, in all kinds of ways, which we can talk about if you want. And by the way, like I tell people I have a master's from LSE and everyone's like, oh, you must have got a master's in business administration or a master's in finance. And my master's is in history of international relations. And I barely got that master's because I had already got a job by the time I was like sort of deep into the program. And like my appetite for writing long academic papers when I already had like an investment banking job lined up was like approximately zero. So I sort of got that degree by the skin of my teeth. That master's, I think, was superfluous and more or less a waste of time. It did lead me to London and that led me into investment banking. And I mean, obviously, like one thing leads to another in your life. I would say in real estate, though, like certainly get a bachelor's because it's a good thing to do in the world. You do not need a postgraduate study to be successful in real estate. I mean, just it's a complete waste of time and money. I do think higher education has some value, like you've said, for various different reasons, even if it's not just educational, it could be relationship-based, networking, kind of just non-educational things that you learn, time management, how to show up, how to, you know, just these things that are intangible. So I do think there's some value there, but I do often joke that I've learned more from Buffett and Munger than I have my little library that I have upstairs. I've learned more from that than I have my traditional education. I know you feel similar. I know you recommend that everybody reads Buffett's partnership letters. What are some of those key ideas and principles that you've learned from Buffett and Munger? And how have those really helped you in your real estate investing? Absolutely right. If I were going to recommend someone going into business to read one thing, it would be the Buffett and Munger letters. Because I think it's like it's basically like getting an MBA and it's whatever. I think you can get it for free on their website, but I think it's like $14 on Kindle or something like that. And just like, go read that before you go even think about an MBA. The other ones that I wish that I had read... So if you're going to read two things, I would say the Bezos letters, which are available in a book called Invent and Wander, also on Kindle. And the reason I say that is because Buffett's extremely good on like investing 101 type stuff. He is admittedly like not an expert in technology and also in retail. And so Bezos's letters kind of fill in some gaps in the Buffett stuff. That's the second thing you should read. Going back to Buffett though, I mean, look, it really is like a pretty well-rounded business education. So pulling out one or two key ideas is kind of challenging. But I think for me, well, there's a couple of things, but one is, and actually this is Munger's line, 
the concept of business as a seamless web of deserved trust just totally resonates with me. And I've sort of tried to have that concept permeate my entire like business career since coming across the concept. So again, seamless web of deserved trust. So business is basically all business, real estate, every other kind of business is just relationships. And those relationships take various forms. It's borrower and lender, business and customers, investors and business, like you name it. It's a web of interlocking relationships. And almost all those relationships are documented in some form or another, like there's a contract or there's an agreement or whatever. But many of those relationships are not documented. Like I have contractors, like general contractors who have done tons and tons of buildings for us. I mean, when they do construction for us, there's a construction agreement, but our relationship with them is not really about any individual construction agreement. It's about the fact that we keep doing business with them and they keep doing right by us and we do right by them. And so the relationship is not documented in any one contract. And anyway, even if your relationship with someone is documented in a contract, the truth is that enforcing a contract is extremely painful and expensive for everyone. Like you, the last thing that you want to do is have to go to court to like get some judge or whatever to vindicate your particular interpretation of the contract. Like it's a freaking nightmare. You know, years and expense and heartache. It's like a terrible use of energy. So what does that mean? So it means that what Munger is getting at with that concept, seamless web of deserved trust is like, you want to conduct your affairs in a way that allows you to have all these relationships that allow you to get things done with a minimum of nonsense, a minimum of transaction costs, a minimum of fighting. And it smooths your path. It allows you to do big things, which require a lot of coordination among a whole bunch of different parties without paying the cost of these tolls that pop up along the way of like getting involved in these little negotiations every time and enforcement and all that stuff. I think that that's probably the most important concept. We can talk about more concepts if you want. I got a whole bunch of them we can go through, but that's the most important one. Yeah, I do. I want to ask for one or two more, but before we do, I have to ask, are you a Kindle guy? And I go back and forth on that. You mentioned Kindle twice and I always, I debate with myself, do I want the physical book? Do I want the Kindle? And I love both. I love holding a physical book, but there's so many like pros to having a Kindle too. So I'm curious, how do you read them? I go back and forth too, for many of the reasons that you just described. I come down on the side of Kindle and the reason is that like I'm a reading addict, right? Like I read quickly with high comprehension. And I just absorb books. And I regard Kindle's ability to allow you to basically access like any book instantly wherever you are as like, it's one of like the absolute marvels of the modern world. Particularly when you think about how scarce books used to be for almost all of, I mean, obviously for most of the time humans have existed, but we've only had books for not that long. And for a very long time, they were limited to absolutely the richest people. Just a quick story. My family are Jews from Eastern Europe. And, you know, that was not a great place to be Jewish for a very long time. And my mother always imparted to me, like, how precious physical books were. Like, the idea of throwing away a physical book is like, it hurts me inside. And it dawned on me at a certain point that it was because she got that from her mother, who got that from her mother. And these people were poor. Like, having one book was like a miracle. And now I've got this little $50 device that I can get any book in the history of the world instantly. It's like, it's just a miracle for someone like me. So anyway, sorry for the digression, but that's your answer. 
Yeah, it's crazy. I have this little six inch phone that I have right here, you know, for those who are watching on YouTube, you can see I just held up my phone. You said you access hundreds of thousands, millions of books within the next five minutes. I mean, it's crazy. And what I also really like about Kindle is you can highlight and leave notes in the book and then you can search those notes. Like a lot of times I'll remember a concept, but I don't remember exactly what book it's from or et cetera. And I can search those highlighted notes that I have within the Kindle app. And I think that's amazing. Then the flip side is I'm like your mother as I just, I love holding those physical books. I have 350 books upstairs in my living room. I have like my own little personal library. It's like a thing I collect. I just, I love physical books. I go back and forth on the two. There's a politics professor named Maurizio Veroli who was, he was Italian. I'm going to tell you what he said, but you have to imagine it in like a wonderful Italian accent with like a resonant voice. And he used to read this translation of a passage from Machiavelli. And Machiavelli, when he wrote The Prince, he was in exile from Florence where he lived. And he was writing The Prince as like a gift to try to get back in the good graces of the government there. And he wrote about every night putting on his finest clothes to go into his library and commune with the ancients. And the idea was that like via a book, you can talk to like the greatest minds in human history and that we ought to dress up when we do that because it's so valuable as a sign of respect. I mean, that just always stuck with me. That's awesome. You mentioned you didn't really have definitive mentor kind of in your real estate journey. Do you think part of that is because you read so much? I've always kind of been of the belief, you know, I have a lot of newer investors who come to me via the podcast or social media or however it is. And they'll say, you know, I can't get started because I don't have a mentor. I never really saw it that way. I always saw it as you have these books, you have these podcasts, you have these blogs. I mean, you can access anybody. And I personally think that that is like having a mentor. And you know, I read your blog and your tweets and things like that. And I felt like you're my mentor, even though you're not mentoring me one-on-one, but I have all these pieces of content that you've created in books and things like that. I've always felt like that's a form of mentorship. Do you kind of think of it that same way? And have you, is it helped you that way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I didn't have a mentor. What I got, which was of incalculable value. Let me back up for a second. For whatever reason, I went to boarding school. And I, when I got there, I was 15 years old. And I don't know how I did that, why I did this. But at a point, I sort of decided that I was not only okay with, but wanted to be the dumbest person in the room as much as I could be. So I ended up with a group of friends from that school who are just like enormously accomplished people, just in many different walks of life. And that group has helped me in all kinds of... They made my life in a lot of ways. And one of the earliest ways that they made my life was we started a company together, many of us, when we were 20 during college. It was like the dumbest company in the entire world. I mean, we did knowledge management software, like which that's like something that big companies buy and none of us had ever had a job before. So like it, it was really one of the dumbest things you could possibly do, right? But We set up a company and we convinced some investors who are not very smart investors, (laughs) to be completely honest, to give us like 750 grand to build this knowledge management software. I took a year off from college. It was like a complete disaster in every way, except it was like, you can just like wave your fingers around and like say some magic words. And now you have a company and you can go out and you can convince people to give that company money. And then you can have a business like, that right there, once you like internalize that, that's a superpower, right? And so we'll talk later, I imagine, about how I got into the business and all that stuff. But like, I didn't have a mentor, but having those guys show me that that was possible was incredibly important. Then later on, I figured out all the real estate stuff more or less on my own from reading and talking to people and whatever. But I did have people show me that the fundamental act of creating 
a legal entity and convincing other people to give you money to do something with it was possible. Before we get into your first deal, I do want to talk about your first deal and kind of get into some of your real estate stuff. But I have to know what happened with that company. And have you stayed in touch at all with those investors? Have done any of them maybe been in your real estate deals? Like what, what happened there? So the company failed. I mean, we arranged an acquisition. This is like, so we started the company probably in like 2000-ish, 2001. Worked on it for a year, didn't really go anywhere. And by the way, like I was an enormous drag on the company. Like I was the vice president of business development and I developed no business. So yeah, I think probably those investors would have wanted nothing to do with us ever again. So yeah, no, it was what was valuable there was the, as I said before, the showing me what was possible. Nothing really ever came of the company itself. So let's dive into your first real estate deal. A lot of people listening to the show are pretty early on in their career. So I think they'll find it useful. Tell us about that deal. And I want to be real. I'm going to be totally transparent. I was, you know, that's, it's important that people know this. Our first deal, my first deal, first of all, I didn't even find it. My brother found it. And second of all, my parents put up all of the money for it. I think we paid like, I can't remember if we paid one six or one eight, but we put down 35%. So whatever, you know, whatever that number is, I didn't really have any money at all at that point. They put up the dough for that. And I like to say that because I, obviously you can get into this business without family money. And many people who have done way better than I have got in with no family money. But I just want to be clear that I did have that advantage along with a number of other advantages, which we've already talked about. We'll talk more about. I just don't want anyone to get discouraged because I, you know, I had a leg up. So I want people to know that. But yeah, we bought a, this was immediately before the great financial crisis. We bought a 16 unit building. A guy had bought it. There used to be derelict apartment buildings in Los Angeles, which is like an amazing thing to think about. He had renovated it and then he ran out of money before he could finish. So we were able to buy it from him at a reasonable price, even though the market was really inflated then, like he was desperate to sell. This was like, if we'd waited six months, we could have just bought it from the bank because it would have been foreclosed on. But we did it, but we got it at a reasonable price and the bank was willing to loan us the money to buy it even though we didn't know anything because we were putting down such a large deposit that they were just like, look, like it's probably going to work out. And that was my introduction to the business. So what happened? I mean, you said you bought it just right before the great financial crisis. So uh, I'm assuming that didn't translate too, too well. So tell us a little bit about that experience. So we bought a vacant, of course, like you buy something vacant, like you got to, with a loan, like you got to tenant it up like immediately. We, let's see, two things simultaneously. One, we had to finish some renovations. There were a few things left undone is what I'm trying to say. And so the first thing was we had to find someone. We had like hired someone from my brother's soccer team to like start doing some of the work for us. But like it turned out that that was a ripoff. And anyway, we ended up getting someone to help us finish that, the odds and ends. The bank had forced us to hire a management company. So that management company then set about trying to tenant the building. And that did not go that well. And the second tenant that they put in ended up having a boyfriend who was a pimp. I mean, it was a really like, I have some crazy stories about that period. We then took over the leasing. I made a deal with this nonprofit and they leased eight of the units. That was also a disaster for reasons we can talk about. But anyway, we got it. We finally got the building leased up and cash flowing. And then the GFC hit and rents went down by 20%. And that was a nightmare. But the deal had been good enough and sufficiently conservatively underwritten that even with the difficulties that I just described, the deal cash flowed. I mean, it, for a second there, the cash flow basically went away and it got pretty tight for a couple of months. 
But then the rent started to come back and we ended up doing okay. And we still own that building to this day. And so let's see, we probably bought it, like I said, for like one six or one eight. I can't remember the number. The last time I thought about this and I could be getting it wrong, but like, and obviously the values are probably down a little bit because interest rates are up so much, but like that building is probably worth like close to 4 million bucks now. And we've taken out many multiples of what we put in, both from cash flow from the rent, but also from refinancing it. We probably refinanced it like three or four times since then to pull money out. I have so many questions about that. How did, well, first I want to talk about the rents and then I want to talk about your parents, how they structured that and how they got paid back and if they have equity still. But first the rents over the last, I don't know, five years or so that I've been in real estate, you hear people very commonly and a little bit optimistically, I would say that rents never go down. If the market crashes and real estate goes down, then basically people that were homeowners now become renters. And so you always have this influx of renters. And so rents are really stable and they're never going to go down. But clearly you experienced that. So I'm curious, how has... Nonsense. Nonsense. Tell me a little bit how you think about that and how it's impacted your underwriting. Just friggin' nonsense. I mean, I've now lived through two of these episodes. So the first one being that building. And then the second one being in 2020 during COVID with a much larger portfolio. I mean, you know, just to give your listeners some context, we own $200 million worth of buildings now, 50 something apartment buildings in Los Angeles, and we manage another 60 buildings for other people. So we, we got to manage like 950 apartments total. But anyway, so in COVID, March, April, May of 2020, both like people breaking leases to move home. So vacancy, people not paying. At least the vacant ones were good because at least you could re-rent those units. The other ones, we had people sitting there not paying us. And then, but then to re-rent those vacant units at a time when all the kids were going home to their parents' house and everyone was doing work from home and like fleeing from the major cities, we had to cut the rents by 20% and probably 25 on a few less desirable units in less desirable neighborhoods. I mean, it was really bad. So this notion that rents never go down is just, it's nonsense. But fortunately, because we had had that experience in 2008 with that one building where rents went down like probably 15, 20%, that like scarred me. My entire career has been shaped by that experience. And so what we have done, a couple of things. One is we've built a management company and there's some pluses and minuses to that, which we can talk about if you want. But I have always believed that like when push comes to shove in a bad environment, you really like want to control the assets. Someone's got to care about filling up those vacant apartments, right? So that's one. And then two, probably even much more importantly and unambiguously correct, is we have always been pretty moderate about our use of leverage. And we can talk, there's some other reasons why that's important, but one of the reasons is being over levered and then having your rents fall and then being unable to make your rent payments is like a classic way to lose a building, which we are trying, you know, which that we're designed not to do. The main response is don't go nuts with leverage. You didn't happen to learn any of this, you know, low leverage stuff from Buffett, did you? There's a thing with Buffett, which is like, I think that there's a certain kind of person who's sort of like wired to read Buffett in the same way. Sorry, this is going to be like a deep cut, which you'll appreciate. I don't know if all your listeners will, but like in the same way that Buffett read all these books about stocks and then he read Graham and was like, this makes sense to me. And that shaped his entire career. There are, I think, there are certain people who are wired such that when they read Buffett, they're like, okay, I understand that. And so that happened with me. So the reason I say that is a lot of these concepts, like, I guess I probably had read Buffett by that point, 
But the idea of being moderate with leverage and not losing assets is probably something that was innate in me before I read Buffett. So it was more like reading Buffett was like kind of confirmation of some things that I was probably naturally inclined towards anyway. And Buffett does say that. I don't know if it's in a book or a talk I've seen him give or maybe a partnership letter or where it was, but he basically says that people either understand value investing or they don't. Like It either resonates with them or it doesn't. And that's it. I mean, you can explain it to people and you can kind of try to teach it to them, but just generally it's innate in people, like you said, and you just either get it or you don't. And he talks about that a little bit at length. Totally. And I mean, the value investor obviously has some pejorative connotations now. And that's kind of why at the beginning of the conversation, I also emphasize that people should also read Bezos because like there's some, you don't want to get trapped into one paradigm, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. And that's obviously, that's the kind of mind I have as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. So when you say moderate use of leverage... What do you mean by that? Because moderate to me could be entirely different than moderate to you. So when you say moderate leverage, are you talking 50% loan to value, 70%, 30%? Where are you at? 
I care much more. The whole loan to value thing is a, a red herring. And the reason it's a red herring is who cares? No offense to the appraisers who are listening to this. Who cares what some appraiser thinks about value? I'm sure you have. So I can I tell you stories all day about appraisers who don't know what they're doing. The last thing that you should be thinking about is what some appraiser thinks of value. I mean, even if the appraiser's right, the value six months ago before interest rates went like this was very different from the value today. So like, that's not helpful. No, we think about debt service coverage ratio. And what we want to feel like is that if rents come down like 20, 25%, that we will not be in danger of losing the building. So what do you want that DSCR to be? See, that's, this is another thing where I don't want to give an exact number. And the reason is that this is a little bit like real estate 202 or maybe 303. It is a mistake, in my opinion, to people can start using these rules of thumb like, oh, operating expense is going to be 35% of rent. And not every building is different, but every type of building is different. And like, what is appropriate on like a large building that has lots of amenities, for example, is very different from what's appropriate on like a fourplex. And also, it depends on whether you're talking about a standalone deal. Imagine you just you have a job and separately you own a fourplex, right? Because you might be able to subsidize the fourplex mortgage payments from your job, you should not think about that the leverage that's appropriate on that deal the same way that you should think about the leverage that's appropriate on a standalone syndication where there's no other source of subsidy. So, like if you can't pay the mortgage, you're going to lose the building. Versus when we have a lot of these like pools or like funds that own multiple buildings, where if you have a problem with one building, you can cross subsidize and pay the debt from cash flow from the other buildings. So those are all very different situations. So I don't want to give like a rule of thumb, but I want to encourage people listening to this to like look at your P&L and be like, okay, what are my expenses? Now, what does this look like if collections comes down by 20, 25%? And I've got a hint for you. Real estate is largely a fixed cost business, by which I mean your expenses do not change rel- like depending on the rents. Like Your property tax is going to be your property tax, whether you're 50% occupied or 100% occupied, and same for your insurance and your landscaping and whatever. Okay, The good news about businesses that have largely fixed costs is that when the rents go up, okay, you're getting operating leverage, so the net operating income will grow disproportionately. A little bit of additional rent grows a lot of net operating income and therefore cash flow, right? But operating leverage also works in reverse. And if collections come down 20%, net operating income doesn't come down by 20%. It often comes down by a lot more than that. And obviously, your net operating income is what you have available to pay your loan. What I encourage everyone to do is just like sit there with your P&L and maybe a little spreadsheet and be like, what happens? You know, what happens in this scenario? What happens in this scenario? And do so with the understanding that like, look, rents can come down 20%. And if your building can survive collections coming down 20%, then you're probably in good shape. I want to go back and talk a little bit more about the management company. You said there were some pluses and minuses. You started to give us a couple of examples, but let's talk about that a little bit more. And it's a little bit close to home for me. I built up a small portfolio. I mean, nothing massive, but five, six single family homes with a, a friend of mine. And he started to say, oh, we should build a management company and start doing what... Because we do it remotely from 2000 miles away in a city we've never been to. And he's like, you know, we have these really good systems in place and we should start a management company and do this for other people. And I've always been the one that shot it down and he's always really for it. So I'm curious, tell me the pluses and minuses. You know, this is probably going to be at a bigger scale, but... In your situation, you should not start a management company 100%. No question. You should not do it. And why is that? 
Because proximity is like the most important thing for management. Like I want to grow my third-party management business, but I like I got an email two days ago from a guy being like, I think he probably had like 20 or 30 units he wanted to give us, but they're like in East LA County. And I'm like, sorry, man, no chance. And the reason is because the way you build a profitable property management company is one way you do it is geographical concentration. Like people are going to need to drive around to fix things, to let tenants in. There's all kinds of reasons why being able to quickly get to the properties is valuable. So I'll turn down stuff that's like 15 miles from my office, let alone trying to do it remotely. I just don't, I don't think you want to be in that business. Now, with respect to building one more generally, so my parents always owned a few small apartment buildings. And I'm talking like, you know, a fourplex here and a triplex there. And this is in Troy, New York, where buildings actually used to be more or less free. So this is not a large scale operation. And they self-managed. My mom did the accounting and my dad did the leasing and like a lot of the repairs. And that was a big mistake, in my opinion. I mean, they're, they are not people particularly, like they always had other jobs and like they're not, they're not money maximizers. But this was a good side hustle for them. But the way they ran it, in my opinion, was a trap because you just basically, in general, you do not want to create situations where you are doing a job that you could pay someone 15 bucks an hour to do. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with like Naval Ravikant and like the concept of leverage. Like that's anti-leverage. Like do not create minimum wage jobs for yourself. And self-management in a lot of ways on a small scale is creating a job for yourself. Now, you can get around that by building scale. Okay, so what we've done is we have enough scale, both in terms of the stuff that we own and the stuff that we manage for other people that I don't get tenant calls. We have 15 employees. you know. So we're getting the benefits of self-management of control without it completely taking up all of my time, although it does take up a fair amount of my time. And that's where we get to the other argument against doing it. And that is that even if you build scale, your impulse is going to be to continue to buy assets that fit into your management business. And the problem with that is that there are sometimes are often going to be opportunities that you should probably take in other places, in other asset classes, whatever, that do not fit with your management company. And so on the other hand, like there are good, particularly as you start getting into larger assets, there are good third party management companies that you can hire. And so like, even if you build a scaled management business, you're forcing yourself, you're kind of constraining your opportunity set. Does that make sense? I think this is a mistake that I've made. So I'm trying to help your listeners. This is maybe a 202 or a 303 lesson as well, but to help your listeners understand A mistake that I made was because of my fetish for control of the assets, I narrowed the aperture of the opportunity aperture. I was like, I only want to own nice apartment buildings in Los Angeles. And that's like, those are good things to own. But if I had been willing to say, I'm willing to own just nice apartment buildings anywhere that I can get a good deal and I'll just find someone to manage them and I'll watch the manager then my opportunity set would have been much broader and I could have put more capital out more quickly. And I think having run this experiment now for like whatever it is, 12 years, 14 years, I am now firmly convinced that I was wrong and that the right thing to do is to have a, is to be somewhat more geographically or asset class agnostic. And that means probably don't try to build the management business. Do you feel like you have lack of diversification now? Because I mean, you told the guy you wouldn't you wouldn't manage his property 15 miles away, right? So that probably limits you to a pretty small circle of where you're buying assets. So now 
something in LA or California goes wrong, you know, now you're, you're not diversified and you don't have any other markets to kind of prop up those properties. So how do you think about diversification? It's a very interesting question. And there's a number of different facets to it. So the first thing to say is I am not diversified. Like 95% of my net worth is in Los Angeles real estate of one kind or another, almost all in apartment buildings. Is that because of Buffett? No, it's because of my fetish for control. We became experts in buying, renovating, and managing apartment buildings in Los Angeles. And there are some characteristics of the Los Angeles market, which historically made it a very, very good place to own apartment buildings for the long term. Recently, some of those characteristics have maybe reversed or at least moderated. And so question in my mind whether it remains as good a place to invest in apartments as it was. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying it's like there's more questions. So that's one thing to say. But another thing to say is like, look, diversification is for when you're already rich. Like you don't get rich by diversifying. You get rich by specializing and getting really good at one thing and taking a concentrated bet and having that play off and pay off. And so that has worked for us. Like, yeah, I'm not diversified, but I'm richer than I was when I started this business, right? And so now, yeah, do I want to diversify? Like, am I interested in owning buildings in other places or other asset classes or whatever? Yeah, of course. But like, I can do that in part because I have an asset base and a business and investors and whatever that I grew by specializing. It's exactly how I've always felt about diversification, the exact, exact same way. And then part of it is going to a Buffett. He says, diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing. You know, and he does say most people should put their money in S&P 500, but he says diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing. And so for me, that's always kind of how I live my life. I also tend to have a very high risk tolerance. I'm willing to risk it for the biscuit, if you will. So that works for me. And, and I don't need a lot of diversification. Yeah, I think one thing that I have always, early in my career, I used to think that my job was to convince people, convince prospective investors that giving me money was the best risk-adjusted thing that they could do with their money, okay? Total mistake. That's like an allocator mindset. As a real estate operator, that's not your job. That's their job. They need to decide how they want to allocate their net worth. Like, okay, you know, or, or if you're an endowment, how they want to allocate their portfolio. Like, that's on them. As an operator, as a user of capital, my job is the smartest way to invest in Los Angeles multifamily. And so I don't have to, like, I'm not going to engage in a conversation about you do this or should you buy the S&P or should you, like, that's not my job. I'm not a source of diversification for anyone. I am a source of concentration. As a capital allocator, they need to decide what portion of their assets they want to put into Los Angeles multifamily. And then my job is to be the best way to do that. I like that perspective. I haven't really thought of it that way. And, and I haven't raised a lot of money myself. But when I do, I, I think a lot of people when they're starting to raise capital and even people who have some experience, the first thing they want to do is just tell the biggest return number they can. When they go to their investors, they just want to show that they have the best deal. And I think your way of thinking about it is really interesting. One of the benefits, we talked about my lack of a mentor before. Okay, I made a lot of mistakes. What I just talked to you before about the widening or narrowing the aperture, like you know, geographical diversification or concentration, like that's a mistake. I wish someone had been like, hey, ding dong, like it's enough to say you're going to be in apartments and then like go find the best apartment deals and whatever. Okay, so that was a mistake that I made and I would have benefited very much from having a mentor like slap me upside the head and tell me to stop being so stupid. But the benefit of not having a mentor, if you're a bright person who reads and listens and talks to people and really thinks about things, 
is that you will almost inevitably start to have what I would call a differentiated lens. And what I mean by that is, by differentiated lens, I mean like a way of looking at the world or at assets or at markets that's just like different from other people's because you're not inheriting someone else. You're not just parroting what your mentor told you or your dad told you or whatever. You're like, okay, I have to move forward. I'm confronted with a bunch of choices. I'm going to make some choices. I'm going to see what works. I'm going to double down on the ones that work. I'm going to stop doing the dumb things I did. And what happens if you do that and you pay attention and you're in the market getting real market feedback is eventually you wind your way. You can eventually find yourself having wound your way to an extremely weird, unusual way of looking at the world. And it turns out that weird, unusual ways of looking at the world are actually often where like great returns are. You're by definition doing something that's non-consensus, right? So like you could be non-consensus wrong and then that's how to be non-consensus right. And so that whole thing that I just described to you about how you talk to an allocator and how you... I didn't like on the first day be like, this is how I think... No, I like had to go raise money and I had a lot of conversations with potential capital sources until finally it like it clicked for me like how what exactly I am a user of capital and how to talk to allocators and that's just one example of something and our entire operation our entire business is all anywhere you look within the business there are things like that where we just figured it out and many of the things we figured out are maybe suboptimal but there's a bunch of things that we figured out that are genuinely great and add a lot of value and differentiated. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. 
Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. It's one of the benefits of hosting this podcast, or if you're a listener listening to this podcast is we didn't have to go out there and learn those lessons that you just taught us. We were able to learn it from you. We didn't have to go out there and make those mistakes ourselves. I get to hear it from you yourself and the listeners get to hear it as well. Going back to that first deal, you jumped right in with a 16 unit. I'm curious, your parents were doing fourplexes, triplexes, some smaller deals in Troy. Like you said, I actually know Troy, New York. I'm from New Hampshire. I've raced nice. dirt bikes in Albany. So I, I know Troy, nice. New York, actually. But why did you why'd you go right for a 16 unit? I mean, that's a, a decent sized deal. And a lot of people in the audience accident. are just... Accident. Accident. Okay. Tell me more. What happened was my brother and I were looking to buy a duplex, two units to live in. And this was... 2000, you know, 2007, and the market had not crashed yet. So the prices for duplexes were insane. When I say insane, like now I have obviously, when I look at an apartment building, I have a lot of context. I have very good judge of what represents good value. At that time, I was like totally naive. I didn't know what I was doing. But even being that naive, it was like, look, here's what you could rent these apartments for. Here's how what it's going to cost to buy this thing and what the mortgage payment's going to be. And like these things were like obviously stupid. What happened was with the 16, my brother just was on the MLS looking for a duplex or whatever to buy and stumbled across the 16 unit. And the reason that the 16 unit made sense was, as I said before, the guy was basically distressed. The seller was, the owner was over his skis with leverage and like needed to get out. And so it was just an unusual deal from that perspective. I should also note, and this is kind of an, an interesting story and one that has also shaped my view of real estate, is that a year or so earlier, my great-grandfather had owned some buildings. By the time he died, he had, they, they were all gone and there was one building left. And the family, like, so my great-grandfather, he had three kids. So I'm like, there's a, there's a large, long family tree here below this. My family got an offer to buy that building in 2006. Actually, my, my part of the family tree didn't want to sell because why would you sell a building in Manhattan? But the rest of the family did want to sell. So, okay, so we sold. And so my grandfather got a chunk of that money, you know, got his third of that money. And then he split it in half and gave it to my uncle and my mom. And that money that my mom got, which she didn't spend, she held on to it, that became the down payment for that first 16 unit building. So my real estate career began with capital that came from my great-grandfather's real estate career. Do you happen to know by any chance to this day which building it was in New York? And have you looked up how much it is today? I can't remember off the top of my head the address. It was in the 80s on the east side. And I don't know if any of your listeners are familiar with Manhattan, but the bar, there was a, there was a bar called Moe's Caribbean, which may still be there. I don't, it was there for a very long time. So anyway, that's the building, the Moe's Caribbean building. And it was before it was Moe's Caribbean, my great-grandfather used to own a very, very small chain, like three or four tiny little grocery stores. 
And he bought the build, like, so he ended up owning some of the buildings that the grocery stores were in. And that's that building was the last one of those. It's a pretty neat story. I've also heard you mention that if you could, you'd be shorting many of the real estate deals that you're seeing right now. (laughs) You wrote on your blog that you view remote single family rentals as a bad business model. And you said that this type of turnkey business is what emerges at the end of a cycle. Explain this a bit for us and talk to us a bit about it because this is exactly personally what I own. I own remote single family rentals. So I'm really curious to hear more from you about it and and this idea of shorting real estate deals. Sorry for offending you. I am not offended. I, I can't wait to learn. Well, no, I mean, and you might like you're doing it. So you actually might be right and I might be wrong. I mean, that's wouldn't be the first time. Okay. The concept of shorting deals, like in the stock market, if you think that the market is wrong about the price of a security of a stock, you can bet against it. And there's like some reasons why that might not be a great strategy, but you can. And it's actually like, it's pretty cool because there's like this group of investors who are really smart, who go around looking for companies that are, that are mispriced and betting on the prices going down. And that's actually a very useful corrective for misbehavior, for misallocation of capital, right? Like the stock market's a big machine for allocating capital among different companies. Very often, for a variety of reasons, investors are like completely wrong. They give too much capital to the wrong company. And it's very useful to have these like vigilantes who go around and like periodically are like, no, you are wrong about this and here's why. And like they bet against it and often they like release reports saying, here's why I think that this is wrong. Okay. Real estate doesn't have that because these are typically, I mean, it does in public markets, but not in the kind of private deals that we're talking about. There's no, you can't bet that a deal is dumb. The problem is that there's not like the only way that people learn that a deal is dumb is like life happens and it turns out that the deal was dumb. It was over levered. The guy overpaid. Like the tenant turns out to not have been stable and he leaves and you can't replace him. They're all, you know, the, the physical condition of the building turns out to have been much worse than the buyer thought. And therefore the buyer has to put a bunch of money in that he didn't expect. Like there are a ton of different ways that deals can go wrong. I, I mean, I, I just gave you three or four of them, but. You know, particularly in a heavily regulated market like Los Angeles, there's a million other ones that we haven't even talked about. So no one can short those. So the only way that we all find out that that capital was misallocated was when it blows up. So that's when I say it's sad that you can't short deals. It's like, I can see people doing stuff pretty often where I'm like, that's not going to work. Like what? Give us an example. Oh man, I met a guy, I'll never forget this. I was in the housing department. I ran across a guy who had bought a fourplex in Los Angeles. And what had happened was he had, he kicked out the tenants in order to run the thing as an Airbnb. That was his business model. He paid a price for the building that was wildly in excess of what was justified by regular long-term tenants. It was only justified by the Airbnb revenue. At a time when the city had already been talking about banning Airbnbs in RSO apartment buildings, and then the city went ahead and banned RSO Airbnb and RSO apartment buildings, and this guy had paid a price that reflected this revenue, and now the revenue is here. And it was just like, I was looking at this guy, and I'm just like, how are you that dumb? If I were thinking about doing something like that, I would look into, has the city like said anything about whether they're going to regulate Airbnbs in apartment buildings? Like, It's basic due diligence. And that kind of stuff happens repeatedly. Guys buying stuff that have oil wells underneath it. 
I have a list, a due diligence checklist that we go through before buying a building that's like three pages of single spaced, like eight point font. It didn't start out being three pages. It started out being like one and a half pages, but like every time we screwed something up or we saw someone else screw something up, we added to it, right? So very often I see someone buying something where I can just tell even from the publicly available information that it's violating one or more of the things that are on that spreadsheet. And one of the things frustrating about real estate is, this is like a Howard Marks line, and this is maybe not just about real estate, it's about investing generally. We live in one of an infinite number of possible worlds. In other words, you can't know what the outcome is going to be. And very often, the outcome is not what you would have expected anyway. And so all we can do as investors is just think about like probability weighted outcomes, like what is likely to happen versus what's not likely to happen here. When I say that I see people doing stuff that I wish I could short, it doesn't mean that all of those deals blew up. In fact, many of those deals might have worked out great. I'll give you an example. People were paying prices for apartment buildings in like, let's say Phoenix in 2019 that I regarded as just like not smart. Didn't look smart to me. It, it, 2019 already felt like we were late cycle. The rents had already run up. The prices had already run up. And I'm just like, this is like, you're just looking at it and going like, this is not going to work out. Pandemic happens. Everyone flees Los Angeles because they close all the bars and nightclubs and everything. Arizona stays open. Great weather, relatively cheap rents. You know, the bars are all open. People flock to Phoenix. Rents go through the roof. Values run like crazy. So all these people who in 2019 were doing deals that I thought were dumb actually made out like bandits, like they did way better than I did. But still the question is you have to make judgments and you can't, you can't know in advance how those judgments are going to come out. So you have to kind of like, you just have to look and say like, what is the, what is the probabilities here? And going back and looking at 2019 all over again with even ignoring what subsequently happened with the pandemic, I would still say, look, it was not right to buy those buildings. Like that was a bad choice on a risk adjusted basis. Yes, it turned out well, but it didn't have to turn out well. We didn't have to have the pandemic. Like we could have just had a normal recession and those people would have lost their asses. Does that make sense? So like all you can do is just do your best to make probability weighted judgments about what the world is likely to be and then go back and sort of check and say, you know, how good were those judgments? Like would I have made those choices again? That's the best we can do. Buffett talks about that. Howard Marks talks about it. Like you said, Annie Duke has a book called Thinking in Bets. And she talks about how you know you can't judge a decision whether it was good or bad based on the outcome. It's what you put into that decision. And, and I think like you said, nine out of 10 times, those people are probably going to be wrong. I guarantee you in their underwriting, they didn't have a line item that says increase in rents due to global pandemic. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, and it can be very frustrating because this last cycle, which I think is, which is now ended, was deeply frustrating for someone of my analytical bent because the cycle went on for so much longer than typical cycles do. So like I tend to default to believing that things mean revert. So you see excess and then the excess will be punished. And the problem was that this cycle was so long that you're sitting there going, man, you know, stuff looks overpriced in 2017. Up, oh, it's still overpriced. 2018, 2019. You're just like, all these people are making money. And, you know, and in retrospect, I was wrong. Like I should have been in more risk accepting and whatever. And we can talk about that. And you'd rather be rich than right. Right. Anyway, this is all I know how to do is to just like look at what, what are the probabilities in my mind and, and what are the relative values and try to be smart. 
I want to say that I have never done remote investing. I have always like taking after my parents who controlled their assets. I control our assets. So I, you have to understand that I'm coming to it with that bias. Okay. And what you're doing as a remote single family home investor is saying like, I'm going to widen my aperture. I'm not just going to look at single family homes where I happen to live. I'm going to expand my aperture and look at opportunity across the country and be able to sharpshoot deals that make sense where, you know, in, in one or more other geographies. There's a lot to be said for that. The downside though, I think is it's pretty tough if you're doing specifically single family home investing with the kind of money that like a normal individual would have. It's pretty tough to accumulate a portfolio in any one place that's going to be of sufficient importance to whomever you have managing it to get their full attention. And when things are going well, it's like, fine, whatever, rents are going up, like, you know, rents and values going up, like, washes out a lot of mistakes, a lot of problems. Whatever, it took a while to fill that vacancy, but once we got around to showing it, we actually did fill it and the rents are higher, so it all worked out. Or like, yeah, we were vacant for three months, but you know what? Who cares? Like values have been going crazy because it's 2021 and like, who cares? I'm up, I'm so far to the good on this that I don't really care about the operations because it's really just like about the, you know, just a levered bet on asset prices. But rents do not always go up and values do not always go up. And real estate has problems. And many of those problems are complicated to fix and expensive. When you're doing small things very far from where you live, you're dependent. Like it's not, it doesn't make sense for you to fly out there all the time and deal with it yourself. So you're dependent on local people to fix it. And on the other hand, you're not going to be of sufficiently large scale probably to interest someone in really focusing on your thing. They're going to, you're going to be a small part of their portfolio, their management portfolio. And therefore you'll get the attention that a small part of someone's portfolio tends to get. So I think that in a world where things are not always going up, I think that that is a, that's a scary place to be. So I'm curious, what problems do you see with, let's say you own, like, like me, we'll, we'll use my exact situation. So I own four or five, six of these single family houses in Texas. And I started there with just one and have grown a little bit of a portfolio since. But basically, I self-manage. And anytime there's a problem, I, like let's just say there's a plumbing issue. I call the local plumber. I've built a relationship now. I've been doing this for four or five years. But originally, I just call a plumber and they would go check it out and they'd take care of the problem. And that's how we've done it with everything, electricians, handyman, et cetera. And, and so far, knock on wood, that's been a, a really good process for me. So I'm curious kind of what you see as downsides for that. Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, one thing to say, I want to be very clear. First of all, I wrote that piece that I think you're referencing probably like four or five years ago. And I have since seen people do remote management successfully. Like I have a friend, Rowan, who, Dar, who's actually does single family home Airbnbs and he's got like one home each in like five different markets. And Airbnb is a harder business to do than the one you're in. And he's not even in one market. He's in, in five or six different, whatever it is, different markets. And he's doing six, he's doing it well. One thing to say is I could be wrong. Another thing I could say is like in the whatever it is, like four or five years since I, four years or whatever since I wrote that piece, technology has improved. So like you can, someone can like FaceTime you and show you what's wrong in a way that maybe they couldn't before. That's exactly what I do. FaceTime. That being said, a lot of the, okay, whatever, fixing a toilet, not a big deal. Okay. What happens when you have a plumbing leak that leads to mold that leads to a mess where you're like, 
Someone's got to go get the tenant, convince the tenant to move to a hotel, find a mold remediation company to come in, demo the walls, pull that stuff out, clean it all up, then get a plumber to come in, fix the leak, then get someone to come build it back and then put the tenant back in. That's a problem at, at scale. Like with, we have 950 units. We probably do what I just described like a couple times a month. Okay. You have not run into it, knock on wood, because maybe you bought good buildings or maybe, and your portfolio is small. So like every month there's a dice roll, a cosmic dice roll that takes place, right? The chances are in almost every month, your dice roll is going to come up fine and you're not going to have these problems. You're going to collect rent and it's all fine. But it over N months, over N properties, then it's virtually certain that these complicated problems are going to emerge. And then the question is, can you like effectively deal with them? And the answer is maybe yes, maybe technology and coordination and whatever are to the point where you can, but color me still a little skeptical. Yeah. And I don't blame you. If I had to do this for 950 units, it couldn't be done. But I've done this, like I said, five, six units. It's not too bad. Not I think two or three at a time is the most that I've done. And, and I have done some rehabs. One was pretty comprehensive, but it, it was still one at a time. And it wasn't like this. You know, I wasn't doing 50. I wasn't doing 100. So it was, it was manageable. And I think technology is very thankful. And, and like you said, I have a small sample size. So we'll see what, what happens in the next, I don't know, five years, maybe. Yeah. But I mean, I don't, depending on when you bought them, it's likely that you're very far, even with the prices having gone down now, like it's likely you're very far to the good asset price wise. So like, Maybe it's fine. Maybe you're just like, look, I don't give a shit. Like every once in a while, I'm going to have a problem, but like I made a lot of money here and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I would say that I personally am extremely averse to strategies that rely on asset price appreciation to drive the value creation. So I want things that I think that are, I want to be pretty confident that I'm going to be happy about how things work out just on the basis of the cash flow and like periodic refinancings. So the asset price thing, bailing you, not bailing you out, but bailing one out is like when I do underwriting, I want to think about that as a bonus, not as the thing I'm relying on, if that makes sense. So I'm very focused on operations and therefore I'm thinking about large sample sizes and therefore I want to be able to control. Makes a lot of sense. You've given me a lot to think about and I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know I could keep talking to you for hours and hours. I just, I want to be respectful of your time. I really appreciate you joining me. I know everybody in the audience is going to love this episode. So I want to give you a chance to tell them where they can find you, maybe your blog, Twitter, anywhere you wanted to kind of direct people to follow with you after the show. I want to say thank you for a great discussion. You know, I've done a fair number of podcasts and like struggling off the top of my head to think of one recently that I, where I thought the discussion was of higher quality than this one. So kudos to you for that. I did a great job here. If people want to find me and frankly, to learn about real estate more generally, I think Twitter right now is like, particularly real estate Twitter is just absolutely on fire. It is the, I would have killed to have this resource when I was starting out. And so I just cannot emphasize enough that you all should be on real estate Twitter. And what I mean by that is go find me on Twitter through my account. You'll find, because I interact with all these people, you'll find Chris Powers and Nick Huber and Barrett Lindbergh and Sean Sweeney. And the list goes on and on and on. And you'll just, it's like an MBA every day. It's really amazing. So start out by finding me at Moses Kagan and all one word at M-O-S-E-S-K-A-G-A-N on Twitter. And then, like I said, go from there and just like follow a bunch of people and you'll be sucked in immediately and it will make a material difference to your career. 
I have to say, we're kind of completing the full circle here on all those people you just mentioned. The only person out of those people that I haven't had on the show is is Sean. Everybody else, Chris, Nick, everybody has been on the show. So everybody go go follow Moses. Like you have all the previous guests that we've had. I, I Like Moses said, you guys will learn a ton. Moses, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.